Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome into another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer. There's no easy way to sugarcoat this. This is a podcast I think we all hoped we wouldn't be having. Yesterday, March 1st, Major League Baseball canceled the first two series of the regular season after the league and union negotiators were unable to come to a new collective bargaining agreement that would have ended the current lockout. Uh, This is now the first time in 27 years, dating back to the 1994-95 strike, the games have been canceled due to a work stoppage. This has effects that are going to reverberate both the majors and the minors, short-term and long-term. And here to break it all down with me is J.J. Cooper. J.J., I want to start with some perspective here. I'm 33 years old. I don't think that's young anymore, although some people tell me it is. Uh, But look, I'm a full-time professional. I'm married. I have a mortgage. I have a kid. All the typical adult milestones. And even I have no memory of the last time baseball lost games due to a work stoppage. I was five years old when the strike began in 94 and six years old when players returned to the field in 95. I mean, even people a couple of years older than me really have no conscious memory of the last time games were lost due to a work stoppage. Almost anyone 35, 36 or younger, which is not an insignificant chunk of the population, uh, this is the first time in their conscious lifetimes that game has been lost due to a work stoppage. Uh, this is a new hurt, not an old one for a lot of people out there. As someone on your end who not only remembers the effects of games lost in 94 and 95, but was a working professional covering baseball at the time, what effects do you expect to come from games being lost this time around, just from having been directly involved the last time it happened? Man, I'm old. I mean, it's funny when you said that, like, I not only remember that, obviously, and and I do, like, no one remembers this now, but in 02, I had, I can't even remember if I had actually started at Baseball America or just accepted the job, but the September 1 was, August 31st, September 1 was the deadline where if they didn't come to an agreement, the players were striking. And The subtext at that time was, hey, we like you, JJ, but, you know, the the 94-95 strike was not a great time for Baseball America. And I'm like, oh, no, what am I, you know, I want to work at this job. And thankfully that was resolved. And I remember in 81, kind of the funky system that we ended up having that year where it was a split season and you had a, a... the, the team that ended up with the best record in the National League didn't go to the playoffs. Explain that one to, to, to someone who's younger, like, wait, what? You know, so there's, so yes, this is like a, I, I would say this is an undercurrent of my entire life as, as someone who loves baseball. Um, and by the way, along those lines, it's been really great that we've had a long period of time where I haven't had to think of it that way. Uh, you know, as personally, as a fan, because again, we're both fans of baseball in addition to covering it. But the thing that I remember from 94, 95, one of the things I remember is, is I, 
I'm a realist about this. If they miss a week of the season, okay, they're probably not going to lose a whole lot of fans. But I know friends of mine who were fans of baseball going into the 94 season. And they came out in 95. They did not come back when Cal Ripken broke the, broke the streak, you know, had the, had the rec, broke the record. They did not come back for Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire. They just never came back. They were like, nope. And baseball went from, I have a good friend of mine who, if baseball was his number two sport, he was an NFL fan, but if baseball was maybe his number two sport behind football coming into the strike, it came out as like a distant fifth and it never came back. And that is something that I, as, as an editor of a baseball publication, I hope that no one listening to this, that that happens to you. But I am a realist to say there will be MLB fans. If you're a fan of baseball, there's still a lot of baseball going on. But if you're an MLB only fan, this is going to leave a mark that will not be healed in many cases just because they come to an agreement and games resume in April, May, June, or July. I think what's so frustrating for a lot of people out there is how avoidable this was and really the responsibility does reside with the owners. The league instituted the lockout, something they were not required to do, they chose to do. They then waited 43 days to make a proposal, wasting six weeks that could have been used for valuable negotiations. They're the ones who imposed the deadline during these talks in Jupiter about we need to have something done by this day or we're canceling games. At each point, the owners have been the one applying the pressure points. I think that it's very difficult right now to square for a lot of people. Baseball financially has been flourishing. League revenues rose more than 30% from 2015 to 2019, and revenues are not profits. But Forbes reported that teams on average made $800 million in profits during the decade of the 2010s. During that time of growth, the median player salary has fallen more than 30% from 2015 to 2021. So at a time when revenues are rising, both the median and average salaries are falling, at least since 2015 in the case of median salary, 2017 in case of the average salary. I mean, it just seems like it's fairly straightforward. Revenues are rising, profits are rising, salaries should rise as well, and they haven't been. And the players have called that out. That's a big part of what they're trying to fix here. Uh, and the owners have really not been willing to give very much at all. To be honest, they've flourished under the current system. And so they see very little reason to materially change it. And thus we are where we are. When you kind of assess the situation, given the financial background, given what the players are fighting for, given the stances owners have taken, I mean, how do you see this playing out? So the thing that does stand out to me right now is at its core right now, the thing that I don't think is being talked about enough is there's a, there's obviously a, 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 a lack of trust between the owners and the players and between Rob Manfred and the players. There's not that, this is not a partnership. This is not something where, and look, it should be at best probably an antagonistic partnership. But if you have a system where the players and owners both benefit from the growth of the game, you can have a grudging partnership at, you know, at that point, because both everyone agree, everyone understands, Hey, if this helps the game and brings more money to the game, that's going to come put money in my pocket or at the worst, other players' pockets, right? In addition to the owners. That's kind of being severed right now. Um, and, and I say that because, like, you look at the proposal on the, the – you look at the CBT, the competitive balance tax, the luxury tax, a lot of people call it, thresholds. And this is one of the ways that the owners – Utterly, you know, again, you, you, if you don't want to simplify it to winners and losers, but it's one of the ways the owners won the last two CBAs, which is the CPT, CBT threshold has barely risen. It has been rising at a very, very modest rate at a time, as you noted, where revenues, other than the 2020 coronavirus pandemic, in, you know, harm season, otherwise, Revenues have been going up. And so because of that, 
teams have, and basically right now at this point, the CBT is something that many teams are treating more and more like a do not exceed line. With that being the case, the owners are benefiting much more from the rise in revenues than players are. And by the way, one thing just worth remembering kind of gets lost in this. There are new TV deals that have just national TV deals that have come in. Turner just signed uh, after right after the pandemic signed a seven year $3.75 billion deal with MLB. That's a 65% increase in the amount that they pay. So there are, we know already of increased revenues that are coming in. And basically what the, but the proposal the owners have for the CBT is one where they're essentially saying, but that's not going to really bump up the level of the threshold at which some really significant financial penalties apply to teams who exceed that level. Again, I just keep going back to these two basic facts at kind of the core of everything here. That league revenues rose more than 30% from 2015 to 2019, the last full season for which we have available data, while the median player salary fell more than 30% from 2015 to 2021. And all the central issues in the current negotiations, the competitive balance tax threshold, service time manipulation, pre-arbitration salary controls, tanking, they all circle back to mechanisms and practices teams have employed to keep player salaries down and depress player markets while revenues have soared. And as we've established, the owners did very, very well in both the 2012 and 2016 collective bargaining agreements. They have created this system where they are raking in cash despite their protestations to the contrary and not having to share it with players, at least at the rate at which they're bringing it in. Look, the players... They're trying to fix it. They see the behavior for what it is, but the owners, as I mentioned, they just, they have very little incentive to materially change it because they're doing great. And I don't know how you solve that. Um, not quickly. Negotiations are never easy. I remember early in the off season, you saw various opinion columnists writing that they couldn't imagine that these quote unquote minor issues would keep the sides far apart and lead to the cancellation of games. And look in any business, whether you're talking about company merging or acquiring another company, whether you're talking about public policy discussions, whether you're talking about any sort of major financial transaction or any type of negotiation where there are major financial ramifications, it's never easy. And it's never just about the facts. Egos always, always, always play a part. Who the people at the table are make a big, big difference, even when the facts are the same. And it just seems like it has gotten more and more antagonistic. We saw that during the 2020 pandemic shortened season when, I mean, baseball had a great opportunity to be the only game in town. And despite what Commissioner Manfred said at his initial press conference in Orlando about there not being any way they could have played more than 60 games, well, the owners proposed 82 games at pro-rated pay. The players said no. The owners offered 72 games at pro-rated pay. The players said no. Again, there were opportunities to play more than 60 games, despite what the commissioner said. The owners proposed it, but they didn't want to pay to do it. And that's where we are now. It consistently comes back to there have been opportunities for games to be played. The owners have not wanted to pay the players an amount that they're either contractually obligated to pay them or what would be fair market value based on how revenues and profits have been rising across the game. And I don't think that's a simple solution. I don't know how that gets fixed quickly. My concern is given the nature of the discussions and how antagonistic they've become, that it won't just be the first two series of the regular season that are canceled. So uh, a couple of things with this. One is, as we're not the first to say this, but if you say, okay, where does the responsibility for this lie? As you rightfully noted, this is a lockout induced by the... uh, by the owners. This is not the two sides failing to come to an agreement and it's 50-50 on, on why there's not games. There's a lockout. The same way that when players strike, they leave, they, they stop playing games. But as people have said and rightfully said, there is no way for the Players Association to get back to where it was in 2002, 2007, wherever you want to pick, in one CBA. They 
were so thoroughly trounced at the negotiating table in the 2012 and 2017 negotiations that that they basically have to pick, okay, where are the ways that we want to improve it in this one? And then let's see what they'll do in the next one. That said, the crazy thing about this right now is, is like the proposals, as I understand them, that the players laid out are really pretty incremental. I, I've read, I've heard from people saying, well, we, what we need is a salary cap and a salary floor. Okay, let's talk about that for a minute. Salary cap, salary floor. Player association, it is right to say, has always been adamant that they do not want a salary cap. I don't know right now. It's easy to say, oh, the owners would agree to a salary cap, salary floor. If you actually break that down into what that means, I don't think the owners would accept it right now. And this comes back to the big market small market or the big revenue, small revenue divide. Because if you look at how a salary cap is applied in NFL, in NBA, it requires for one, you open the books. It is something where contractually the players get to audit the books to verify because as the salary cap is set, NHL too, Salary cap is set at a percentage of revenue. So that's one that I don't know if the owners have, they're, they're effectively getting a salary cap right now at the CBT. That would be a difficult one. The debates over revenue, that would ensue over if a salary cap was proposed is something that you would need to start the negotiations right the day after you sign a CBA. I'll just give a couple of examples. Hey, we have a real estate development around our ballpark owned by the club. Does that revenue in any way count as baseball revenue? I, I can tell you right now, my suspicion is owners would say, no, those are separate entities. There are separate corporations in some cases. Why would that be included? And the player's argument would be because the value of those restaurants, those parking decks, all of those things are derived from the 81 baseball events that occur or more that occur at that stadium. That's the debate on that. What about if you have, like you have in Chicago, you're building a, 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 a sports book tied to the stadium. Does that revenue, the debates over revenue could go forever. But on top of that, at the core, the, the, the biggest issue, one that baseball has never been able to solve is, okay, if you say that there's going to be a percentage of revenue that salary cap is based off of, and then you have a floor and a ceiling, that floor is going to be higher than many small rev, small spending teams, let's put it that way, are willing to spend on a day, year in, year out basis. Because right now, right now, those teams have a freedom to cut their payrolls to a number that is so far below where anything comparable in the NFL or NBA. And there is no ramifications of that. And one other little through point we've seen in these negotiations, the Players Association has proposed various ways to ensure or tied to attempt to ensure competitiveness, something where there are penalties for a team that is continually bad and doesn't seem to be attempting to be competitive. The owners, they are willing to accept some version of a lottery, but a lottery, a draft lottery does not ensure competitiveness. It just adds a little bit of randomness to a rebuild. There has not been something yet where the owners have been willing to accept that there are negative consequences for failing to attempt to compete. And we have teams right now that do not attempt to compete for three, four, and we may get to five years at a time. Like, what's your thought on that, Kyle? Like, like, that's something that, like, to me, as someone who looks at baseball, tries to look at baseball in an even-handed manner, the players are right when they say that there are teams that basically, that right now the benefits of slashing payroll financially for teams is often much more than the negative ramifications of slashing payroll. 
Well, we've seen the race to the bottom become a lot more intentional and frankly, a lot worse since Major League Baseball expanded to a 162 game season in 1961 up through 2018 there had been only one time two teams lost 110 games in the same season. And that was in 1969 when the expansion Padres and Expos both lost 110 games. We've now seen multiple teams lose 110 games in a season, each of the last two full seasons, 2019 and 2021. Something that happened once in more than 50 years has now happened twice in the last two full seasons. The race to the bottom has just gotten a lot worse. And, Again, rebuilds and, and kind of the cyclical nature of you have great teams, those players age out, they move on to free agency, you have to start rebuilding or backfilling. That, that's a natural life cycle of baseball, but we have seen it get a lot worse and a lot more intentional. And regarding the salary cap, that has always struck me as a solution that isn't really a solution. People assume that will enhance competitive balance and it won't. Since 2000, there have been 15 different teams that have won a World Series. In the NFL, which is salary capped, there have only been 13 different Super Bowl winners. In the NBA, which is salary capped, there have only been 10 different NBA title winners. Baseball has had, without a salary cap, more different teams win championships than either the NFL or the NBA. The salary cap is not a solution that all of a sudden, all the competitive balance issues are solved. I think right now there are a lot of issues regarding attempts to compete, which absolutely depress players' markets. But I think more than anything else, just goes back to ensuring that players are paid at a rate that is somewhat commensurate with how revenues and profits have been rising. And that just has not happened over the last five years, especially. And the players are right to be upset about it. And the owners could make very, very, very incremental increases. The, the truth is, the league and the owners could meet the players at their most recent proposal and still be making money hand over fist. And again, do not believe them when they say they're not. We saw the Atlanta Braves being owned by Liberty Media, a publicly traded company. Their financials are out in the open and they came out with $104 million in profits last year. And that was in a season where full capacity wasn't allowed the whole season. And yes, they're in a new ballpark. Yes, it was the year they went on to win a World Series, but a lot of times it's the seasons after a team wins a World Series, they see the financial windfalls. Baseball is a very, very lucrative business. Revenues are up, profits are up, and players have not seen that. And that needs to change. I, really, that's what it is at its core. And we've seen the owners fight tooth and nail over very small amounts of money before. I wrote this at the time in 2020. There was a period where the players had proposed a 70-game season and the owners were saying they can only afford to pay 60 games. And it would have cost each team an average of about $8 million to go from 60 games to 70 games. That was roughly the salary of weavers like Anthony Swarzak and Pat Neshek were making. And the owners wouldn't do it. Over $8 million, they wouldn't get 10 more games, start the season earlier, and give baseball a longer spotlight all to itself. These are very, very small amounts in the grand scheme of things to the league and the owners, but they have shown they're willing to fight tooth and nail not to have to spend it. And that's where ego comes in. This is not just about the facts of the case. You know, Who's at the bargaining table matters. The egos involved matter. That's true in every negotiation and every business. And uh, right now, the, the owners, at least the ones who seem to be winning the battle, are the ones who don't want to spend even a couple dollars more, even if it means getting the game on the field, getting players back on the field and helping the game grow and, and be beneficial to them in the long term as well as the short term. And kind of with that, like the, the reality of it is, like here, here's a stat that stands out to me. Baltimore is obviously in one of the longest, and I will say that, one of the longest rebuilds we've ever seen. Baltimore tried in 2018 for the first half of the season, then folded, traded Machado, all that. But they won 47 games that year. They were historically awful. They, won, they had a 290 winning percentage that year. They had a 333 the year after that, a 417 during the shortened 2020 season, and a, and a 321 winning percentage last year. They have been... If, if, you are, if you are a Baltimore Orioles fan and you have lived through the entirety of the Baltimore Orioles 
time in Baltimore, which goes back to 54. This last stretch has been the worst stretch of futility that you've ever seen. If you compare the payrolls, now admittedly, again, 2020 was a shortened season. But if you compare the payrolls for 2019, 2020, and 2021 for the Orioles combined, it is smaller than the Orioles' payroll in 2017. So (laughs) what is happening? You know, this is something where this is a core issue that that players understandably is a, a, a key one for them because if the, the way that the, the pyramid has started to fall apart is if there are eight teams, five teams, eight teams, 10 teams who essentially sit out free agency because they say, hey, we know we're going to be awful this year. So why would we spend to win 70 games when we cannot spend to win 60? That affects the entirety of the market in similar ways, different, but similar ways to the way that if you have a CBT, that basically means that the Yankees or the Red Sox or take your pick of whoever is not going to spend significantly in free agents in free agency because they want to get below the CBT number. Both of those have massive effects on the marketplace for players. Not just free agents, I should say, but tenders, all of that. And right now, I mean, let's be clear. There is nothing in this proposal from either side that is close to being agreed to, and they're not close to agreeing yet. But nothing is necessarily going to significantly change that. And the other aspect of it is you say, well, why has that really sprung up? I mean, one other thing with that is is that If you go back to 2011, even, there wasn't necessarily the massive benefit. If you won 75 games or you won 65, if you picked first or you picked fifth, unless it was a draft that had a Strasburg or a Harper or whoever at top, there wasn't that big of a difference. You know why? Because you could spend what you wanted to spend in the draft. You could spend what you wanted to internationally on the amateur market. So if I'm picking fifth, but I'm going to spend $10 million in that draft, I just keep drafting higher priced players who I like in the second, the fifth, the 12th, the 15th, the 22nd round. And teams did that. In 2012, all of a sudden that spigot got turned off. In 2017, the spigot that said, hey, I can spend as much as I want internationally, which by the way, when I say this, So back then, there was a time where it's like, we're going to spend less on the major league club, but we're going to spend instead on the minor league, on the player development, on player acquisition, especially. You can't do that now. Like, I don't care if you drop, if you lop off $40 million from your big league payroll, just just a CBA ago, you cover them a lot. The Padres said, we're going to, we're going to spend 80 mil internationally. You cannot do that now. You are limited to the draft bonus pool and the international slots right now. So you're going to max out. Like if I cut 40 million in MLB payroll, your the money that you spend on the minor, on the player, amateur player acquisition side does not go up a dime. It is fixed based on where your draft slots are and what your international bonus pool is. And that's one thing the union does bear some responsibility for. At the end of the day, the union's primary job is to ensure their players can get the most money possible. They accepted in 2012 caps on draft spending. In 2016, they accepted caps on international spending. And they accepted changes to the CBT to make it such that it effectively acts as a de facto salary cap. The two points in players' careers where they have a chance to get paid are that initial entry point, draft and international signing bonuses, and their major league careers. And those two areas now, spending has effectively or officially been capped. And that's where the union has really, 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 in my mind, messed up enormously over the past decade. I mean, your fundamental goal is to ensure players can get paid the most 
amount of money they can, and you've accepted limits in the two areas where they actually have a chance to get paid. And that's where, look, the owners have gotten used to it. They love it. All that money they can keep for themselves now. And once they started making that money, it's very, very hard to convince them to try and give some of it back, or at least a meaningful amount of it back. We're in a tough spot now. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. So JJ, we've talked about this situation, obviously at Baseball America, we do a lot of coverage of what's happening in the major leagues, but you know, first and foremost, the minor leagues, the players of the future, how this would affect them. And one of the biggest things here is it's not just major league players who are locked out. Anyone on a 40-man roster is locked out. That means any prospect on a 40-man roster is not able to play a minor league game as long as the lockout is ongoing. The minor leagues are starting. Triple-A season begins April 5th. The rest of the full-season leagues begin April 8th, independent of whatever happens in negotiation. Those two things are happening. Whether a lot of the top prospects in baseball will be playing in those games depends on whether the lockout is over or not. Uh, Josh Norris, uh, over uh, for us at Baseball America, actually went through and counted and found that nearly one-third of all players on 40-man rosters are prospects, prospect-eligible players who, for the most part, would have begun the year in the minor leagues. I think we can agree that if they miss a week or two weeks of games, it's not going to meaningfully harm their development. But if this stretches on, this could be the second time in three years a lot of these players are not getting the normal development time they would have otherwise had. And the other thing is, is, and I've started asking people about this and I haven't heard any good answers yet, all of a sudden, if you are a farm director, players who you were counting on to be your triple-A catcher, your double-A shortstop, you, you look at the Guardians who have a raft of prospects on their 40-man. You look at – but almost pick your team. There you can say, oh, well, what they'll do is, is they'll just promote guys further up. Do remember, teams are now under an MLB – uh, newly induced MLB limit, they're limited to 190 players in the offseason, 180 in season. There are teams who do not have obvious answers right now. Some teams you've started seeing signing some of these vets, signing some of these indie ball partner league players already. But there are going to be teams who have to figure out, oh, okay, well, um, we lost uh, our, our three catchers for double-A AA and triple-A are all in the 40-man, looking at you nationals. Um, how are we going to put – you don't want to just all of a sudden say, okay, so our high-A catcher becomes our triple-A catcher, our low-A catchers become our double-A catchers. That's terrible. 
so what it means is is i there may be we we may see a raid on partner league players like we saw last year but i'm at even a higher rate which by the way the atlantic league starts in mid-april themselves Oh, they, they may be seeing like, hey, this is the guys they bring to spring training and they just keep watching them go away. And when you talk about development, one other thing to remember is if this starts to stretch out a little bit, let's say that there's an agreement in, on May 1st, okay? Well, the minor league season's rolling along, but if you're a pitcher who's on the 40-man and they say on May 1st, okay, we're back. Congratulations. I mean, are you hoping to get into a real game by June 1st? You've lost half the season. Even though there's only an agreement basically one month into the minor league season, by the time you get stretched out, by the time you're ready to actually really pitch in games, if you need that normal spring training, you're going to have lost another month. And that's where, as you pointed out, this is going to be happening to players who already lost a year in 2020. This is not good. Yeah, and I think we're going to see the major league product suffer because of it. We noted last year that rookies had, by and large, their worst showing in the major leagues in years in terms of the average rookie performance, you know, slash lines, batting average, on-base, slugging percentage. A lot of it was because they didn't have a full season in 2020. Getting back into it in 2021, they just, it took a little more time to ramp up. The quality of play in the minors dropped significantly. And now we're looking at another season where the quality of play in the minors is going to drop because a lot of the best players won't be playing in them, at least for as long as the lockout is ongoing. And then when they get back up to speed, if they have to go up to the majors quickly, it's just, it's a lot in a very short time. And Again, there's no aspect of this where this is good for the game in any capacity. And I think that's what's so frustrating. That's what's so irritating is, look, a lot of people have pointed out baseball is flourishing financially. A lot of that is because of various broadcast deals, BAM tech sale, all those things. In terms of attendance, in terms of pace of play, in terms of TV viewership, those numbers have been falling. And it's very, very important for the long-term health of the game to get those back up again and physically not being on the field is the worst way in the world to help those things. When baseball season is supposed to be happening for it not to be happening, that's, that's just not a formula for success. And again, it's important to note, this is a lockout imposed by the owners. The owners are the ones who waited 43 days before making the first proposal after instituting said lockout. They're the ones who put the deadline on this. There are certainly times where, both sides are at fault for any sort of negotiation stalemate. This one, forgive the editorializing, this one is wholly and fully on ownership and the league. And until they are willing to share, frankly, just a reasonable percentage of their revenues and profits with players and just make it so even if players, their salaries were, you know, instead of going up 4% since 2015, maybe that number is 10%. And again, they've been falling since 2017 on average, and the median's been falling since 2015. I mean, just getting those even to break even, that would be a step forward. And it just, at this point, ownership has shown no inclination to make those very small incremental changes. And again, the players are right to say, we want this. And if owners aren't willing to give it, again, I don't know what the solution is. There's no obvious solution here other than the owners being willing to give a little more. And every indication we've had dating back to the 2020 pandemic is that they're not willing to give even a little bit. I, I do wonder, I, I, again, I don't have the ability to say, to state this confidently and I, no one I've seen has reporting to be able to do this, but is the CBT number, which again, I keep going back to uh, is is by the standards of revenue is growing at a rate. I, I, I ran these numbers yesterday. If you compare it, so the NFL from 2011 to now has seen a 56% increase in the salary cap. The NBA has seen a 91% increase, 91.5, 56.5. MLB has seen a... 
5% increase. So, and again, a salary cap is not a luxury tax. A luxury tax is not a salary cap. All that's true. But when Rob Manfred was asked yesterday in his press conference, why a proposal that, by the way, their proposal that MLB has right now would limit the CBT threshold growth to 21.7% from 2011 to 2026. When he was asked why such a low rate, the answer that Manfred gave was, well, it's right in line with our growth rates of the last two CBAs. Now, I will point out as I that did That is false. We should Twitter, say it. That, that is a no, false no, statement. No, 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 no. That is actually relatively true. It is in line because the last two CBAs have shown almost has shown very modest growth in the CBT. They would, they would basically very modestly grow it again. It would still be less. But again, when you say along the lines, you could stretch it to that. Why did he mention the last two CBAs? Because the two CBAs before that, the CBT threshold grew by 52%. If you said, hey, let's average that out over the course of the last four CBAs, the proposal is massively below the rate. It is something where essentially, if you wanted to fill in the margins there, what he's saying is, hey, these are the rates we got in these last two incredibly beneficial to owners CBAs. Why wouldn't we get it again? And what you have the players saying is, you won those two, but at a time where revenues, as you pointed out, are really growing. And by the way, and there are deals likely to come over the next three, four years that will show additional revenues growing that are not agreed to yet or not. There's already a mention of a, a Peacock deal potentially or, or other streaming deals coming. But as those are happening, why would it be, I, you know, if you, <laughs> there's a reason that MLB that in 2011 had a $178 million CBT threshold at a time when the NFL had a 120 million and the NBA had a 58 million is now sitting in 2022 would have a proposed 220 million threshold while the NBA is at 112 and the NFL is at 208. Hey, the NFL is going to pass. Their salary cap is going to pass the MLB number, and I get that in some ways because it is a larger revenue sport. But if you even compare it to the NBA, which is much more of a, a, a logical analog, we are seeing salary growth in the NBA at a level far beyond what we're seeing in MLB. And that is something where in 1994-95, the argument was being made by Bud Selig about hope and faith and how this has to be done for to save the small market team. That argument's not really being made right now. That's not the argument's being made. I, if you watch that press conference yesterday, that that's not the argument being made. He says that they have a payroll disparity problem, and they do. But that's an issue that has, this CBA is a rollover of the last two CBAs as proposed. And that will not change that payroll disparity problem. And one could argue that is the problem that the owners have that they have been unable to solve. And, the, and nothing in this is going to ensure that, that teams that, uh, again, from a competitive basis, nothing in this will ensure that teams that are pocketing over, you know, in some cases, 70, 80, 100 million revenue sharing are going to be, are going to face any kind of downsides for not being competitive or for not having salaries that are at an, a level to attempt to compete. JJ, if for any reason the cancellation of games extends beyond just these first two series, do you expect, did we see last time, an increased number of fans going to minor league games to get their baseball fixed? What are the effects going to be here on the minors? We talked about there won't be 
maybe the same level of talent on the field considering how many top prospects are on 40-man rosters, but it's still baseball. There will still be good players on the field. There are plenty of good prospects not on 40-mans. Adley Rutschman and Bobby Witt Jr., two of our top three prospects, are among them. Do we expect to see more and more fans flocking to minor league games? Is that what happened last time? I think you will see some of that. Um, I think college baseball is, is well positioned to have a moment because college baseball is rolling along right now, right at a time where it, it – but also college baseball is le- has less friction right now to enjoy college baseball as a fan than minor league baseball does. And that is a problem for minor league baseball, in my opinion. If I'm a college baseball fan, once we hit conference play, I can turn on my TV and there's college baseball. If I'm a big college baseball fan, I raise my hand. I can sign up for ESPN plus and I can have more college baseball on a given day than anybody in their right mind or even non-right mind can consume. You can't consume it all. Okay. Now let's take that to the minors going to games. Absolutely. But, hey, I want to watch minor league baseball on my TV. Not my computer, not my phone, my TV. Well, where's the app? Oh, I don't have an app. They don't have an MILB TV app yet. Okay, well, what about on ESPN? What about, you know, they have baseball on ESPN, SEC Network, ACC Network, Pac-12 Network, if you're one of the 12 people who can get it. Uh, You know, like Big Ten Network. You know, all those have baseball, right? Well, what about minor league baseball? As of that right now, not really. Okay, what about, but again, what about the app? No, we haven't had an app yet. Maybe they do this year. I'm trying to find out if they're going to have an app this year. But no, they haven't. Um, So I do think that that is, right now, it's easier to watch, you know, college baseball as a fan than it is minor league baseball. And that's an issue for minor league baseball. The broadcast quality is significantly higher, more consistently for college baseball, the games that are on ESPN, ESPN plus, I mean, minor league right now, you go on MILB.TV. It's, it's a guessing game. It's a little bit of roulette. Is this broadcast going to be watchable or not? (laughs) Sometimes it is. A lot of times it isn't. Shout out, shout out Bradenton, shout out Altoona, shout out. Like, I mean, Hey, let me say triple a broadcast on the East coast. Do a really good job as a West coaster. Like you are, you get to low A, low A West, even some triple A West. Ooh, it, it can get a little, uh, a little disappointing as you tune in for one of those games. And in general, the lack of consistency is a problem where, again, I did turn on a college baseball game on ESPN Plus the other day where the center field camera was bouncing up and down and gave you vertigo and you had to switch. But for the most part, you're going to get a professional quality broadcast that you're just not always going to get with MILB.TV. So you're right. That's a fair point. College baseball, A, just the fact there's more college baseball teams in more major metro areas, you have greater attendance potential just there. And on top of that, even for people who don't want to go to the ballpark but still want to watch baseball, college baseball is a lot more accessible. So I have to ask, you have a post up today, kind of a, a college baseball 101 guide for fans and people who are fans of Major League Baseball or top prospects, but maybe college baseball is not their thing. And, and by the way, I say this as an employee of Baseball America, college baseball has never really been my interest. My love for the game started watching Major League Baseball. That's all I watched for the first 22 years of my life until I was introduced to the minor leagues at my first job. And prospects became a part of that. But, but college baseball, for the most part, has never been a part of my Baseball love, baseball circle, I'll throw in a game every now and then if nothing else is on. But now there's, there's a lot of opportunities to get those people who like baseball, who enjoy baseball, and who maybe college baseball is not on their radar. What are some of the things people should be watching? And again, you have a post up today. I encourage everyone read. I learned some things reading it. Uh, what are kind of the top storylines in college baseball right now? And, and maybe some things they can take advantage of in this work stoppage. Well, I mean, for one there are some fascinating things going on already in college baseball this year. Um, I, these are not the, I, the, the post we put up today is we have in there links to our preview, right? If you want to become a hardcore fan, we got an on-ramp for you. We got our top 25 deep in deal, you know, conference previews, all that the season's only two weeks old, a little over two, two and a half weeks old. So buckle in, jump in, buckle up. 
But if you're a more casual fan, can we tell you about this guy, uh, you know, NC State, you know, he goes by Tommy Tanks, which is Tommy White, who, who basically has, has hit nine home runs in eight games so far. He hit three home runs in his college debut, then another homer the next day, then another homer the next day. He did take the midweek games off, and then he followed up by hitting homers in every game this past weekend as well. He's on pace to not just beat the freshman home run record, but kind of obliterate it right now. Or, hey, do you like velocity? The hardest throwing pitcher in college baseball right now throws harder than the hardest throwing pitcher in Major League Baseball right now. Ben Joyce, I went back and looked at it. If you said last year there were seven over 700,000 pitches in Major League Baseball, there were three that were thrown at 103 miles an hour, none beyond that. Ben Joyce has thrown 36 pitches that we have, right, 36 fastballs so far this year. And he's thrown five 103-plus, including one 104. No pitch in Major League Baseball was 104 last year. That's kind of crazy. And by the way, like, you know, but then there's teams, Texas, you know, is this the year that Texas wins their first title in a generation? Um, there's interesting teams out West. Stanford's having a really good start to the season. There are interesting teams in the Midwest, not just uh, Texas, but you go up the, you know, you go to, up to Oklahoma State. They keep winning these kind of cardiac kid type uh, comebacks in the ninth inning. You look at the SEC, the SEC looks loaded again. So does the ACC. College baseball has a lot going for it. But the key thing that we just talked about is it's really easy. I, you can go out to a game, and that's a big part of it. And there's a lot of fun places to go to games. But if you just want to sit at home on a Friday and surf, you can bounce from good game to good game to good game. And I go back to the frictionlessness of it. If you have the ESPN app, it's really easy. It doesn't take much work at all to sit there and choose between, or if you have the ESPN Plus, like you're like as a real college, you know, a hardcore college baseball fan, you could literally be choosing between 15, 20, 25 games at any point on a Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. That's that's a way to dive into a whole lot of baseball. And by the way, the one last thing to probably, you know, that we probably should touch on is is this is yet another year where spring training is not going to be normal spring training in Phoenix and Arizona. I mean, Phoenix in Arizona and Florida. And that's unfortunate. Like as someone who has spent time in Arizona, Kyle, what is the point? What is our limit? It's not fun to be in playing in during the day in Florida in June or July. I mean, admittedly it's, it's uh, that is that is humidity that you can cut with a knife and a fork. But where's the point where if you're in Phoenix and it's like, hey, we got to do some PFPs today. It's like I can't. My spikes just got on fire from the uh, field. So I went to Arizona State and the semester typically ended in mid-May. And I remember my graduation week exactly you'd walk along the blacktop and you would see the imprints of the soles of shoes in the blacktop. The blacktop literally was hot enough that your shoes would leave an imprint in mid-May. That is the heat we're talking about here. And once you get into May 31st, June 1st, you got to do things at no later then 8 a.m. in the morning, 9 a.m. in the morning, you want to be wrapped up or you don't start anything until 7 p.m. But even then, I remember even into September, going to some ASU football games as a student, those, you know, week one, week two games, they all started at 7 p.m. and it was 100 degrees at kickoff still. To get work in, in Arizona, to the level teams want to during spring training, it's got to be done by the end of May at the absolute latest and preferably by mid-May. It's, it, it's brutal. But JJ, the spring training discussion, I actually think it is an important point we need to hit on. We've talked about this a lot in the context of players and owners. This affects 
so, 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 so many people beyond those two demographics. This is now the third year in a row spring training has been altered in some way. And for a lot of these cities, uh, spring training is, is an economic lifeline. Arizona State, my alma mater, conducted a study that found that six out of every 10 Cactus League fans come from out of state and the economic impact, it was $644 million in 2018 when a full spring season was played. And even in 2020, when it was cut in half, it was still $364 million. These are huge sums of money that employ people, that create a lot of revenue for these cities and municipalities that are sometimes not very large. It's not just Phoenix, it's Surprise, it's Goodyear, it's a lot of places where this money makes a difference to the communities. And that extends now to thousands of stadium workers. It extends to really all the stadium workers across the country. And now you talk about the scouts affected by this, the coaches affected by this, the people who work in baseball. I mean, this is tens of thousands of people whose livelihoods are being interrupted and negatively impacted by this lockout. The longer it goes, the more damage it's going to do. And I, I hope that, and I know we have seen in the past, this is not something that's given nearly enough consideration. I would hope that enough people in the room negotiating, particularly on the owner's side, have at least some respect for that. Because um, the longer this goes on, the more and more people are going to be hurt by this. It's not just a matter of the players. It's tens of thousands of people all over the country whose livelihoods depend on the game of baseball being played. And I, by the way, also, again, you're talking about knock-on effects. We had a piece out there yesterday about what happens with the minors and all. Okay, let's say that they get this settled in three weeks, in four weeks, right? So spring training moves to April. It's as effects of this go, this one's a less, lesser effect. But the low A Southeast plays with one exception in spring training parks. So in the case of the, the Jupiter and Palm Beach share a spring training park, there is a minor league game every day with the exception of the one-off day a week being played there. Now, I know what's going to probably happen. They'll just push those to the backfields. But it's just another example of how there are knock-on effects of this. There's a knock-on effect of, major league players, minor league contracts with an invite to spring training. What happens to those players? If they start the AAA season and they're pitching for the AAA club and then spring training begins, do you pull them from the AAA club so that they get their invite to major league spring training? Or do you keep them playing on the AAA club? Because I don't know which is the better way to win a job. Is it by being stretched out at triple a or is the pitch that's a minor thing what about the rule five draft which by the way and i i as as one of the foremost proponents of the rule five draft probably on on earth i think that there's but i think one of the key parts of the rule five draft is it is an opportunity for players to get added to 40-man rosters which is a transformational moment from a financial perspective you are not only getting a chance to make a big league team, but the moment that happens, even if you get offered back, your pay at AAA or AA goes up, way up. Well, if we go into the minor league season and the lockout continues, there's already been a minor league phase of the Rule 5 draft, but not a major league phase. It is hard for me to imagine teams being willing to do a MLB Rule 5 draft where everyone out there is scouting to see which players have improved, which players are more ready now. And like I wrote this yesterday, if you look at this last year, there would have been players who would have gotten plucked if you had a Rule 5 draft in May or whatever. But if that happens, that just closed the door for 10, 15 players who would have gotten better salaries at the minor league level, after being offered back, then they would have, then they would have, you know, they would have had that as a rule five pick, and now they won't. I, I don't, there's a lot of knock on effects to this. We'll see how they all shake out. As this podcast was being recorded, Mike Trout, the best player in baseball, who is 
not someone who typically makes big statements, not someone who typically takes a lot of sides on things, came out and tweeted out, let me make sure I uh, don't misquote him here. I want to play, I love our game, but I know we need to get the CBA right. Instead of bargaining in good faith, MLB locked us out. Instead of negotiating a fair deal, Rob canceled games. Players stand together for our game, for our fans, and for every player who comes after us, we owe it to the next generation. And again, Mike Trout is not typically a player you see making statements like this. Max Scherzer, you typically see it. Uh, A lot of other players are very vocal on social media and not afraid to rattle the cage a little bit. Trout is not one of those guys typically, but I do think having the best player in baseball and the one who has the most followers on social media of any Major League Baseball player should be noted. Him speaking out, there is something to that. And players have spoken out a lot on social media. This is not something they were able to do in 94, 95, or even 2002 when those negotiations were ramping up and there seemed to be a a real risk of a potential cancellation of the season. Luckily, that did not happen. That's changed the dynamic here. So uh, there's a lot still to come. Obviously, baseball will be back at some point when that point is. Is anyone's guess? Commissioner Manfred yesterday said that there were no negotiating sessions currently scheduled beyond the meetings in Jupiter. They will meet again, but as of right now, there is nothing formally scheduled. So we're all just sitting and waiting and seeing what happens. JJ, thank you so much for joining me today to break down everything with regarding the lockout. Any final thoughts here before we wrap up? Oh, I, from a personal perspective, I mean, yesterday was a rough day. If you love baseball, you don't want days like yesterday. And it, it is, again, I, speaking as someone who loves baseball, the reality that we already seemingly, again, I say seemingly because while the commissioner can cancel games, the length, the season, and pay are CBA, subject to CBA negotiation. So they are subject to negotiation. But it sure looks like that we are going to lose games in 2022. We lost games in 2020. We are now going to basically... And by the way, we also in 2021 had like a weird start to the season because of COVID as well. So it is tough to realize that we are going to go into 2023 looking for the first, quote, normal MLB season since 2019. That's, That's a long time. And... But I do say, like, I, the, my, my one thing as I speak to, again, I know that it can be construed as self-serving because baseball fan, but also work for a baseball publication. But I, but I say this as a fan, as someone who grew up through labor disputes and lost games and a lost World Series and all that. I'm going to be a fan of baseball because I love baseball. And I will find many avenues to enjoy baseball. I enjoy the MPB. I enjoy college baseball. I enjoy the minors. I enjoy partner leagues and indie ball. I could enjoy a summer college league game. I enjoy high school baseball. I'm going to enjoy baseball. And I'm not going to let other people, other entities get in the way of that. And now I'll put my self-serving hat. And as someone, if you're listening to this podcast, I assume that you are a fan of baseball at more than just the MLB level, especially if you've gotten this far into the pod. I hope that you can enjoy it the same way too. And that's something that at Baseball America, it rolls on because we cover the minors and we cover college, we cover the draft and we cover high school and we cover international baseball and all that. And so we have a whole lot of avenues that are still well worth covering. And we will do that whether the MLB lockout stretches for one more week or perish the thought a long time. Yeah, absolutely. We've got a lot of great content up at Baseball America right now. High school team rankings by region, tons of college content from Teddy Cahill and Joe Healy, our college writers. Got prospect position rankings going on right now. We're rolling through our top 10 prospects podcast series, and we are covering the lockout as well. So we've got you covered baseball-wise top to bottom, again, from high school up to the majors. 
Uh, definitely a good time to subscribe just because there's an MLB lockout doesn't mean there isn't a lot of great content up at Baseball America right now. We encourage you to check it all out. JJ, this has been a sad podcast, but one that had to be had. Uh, thank you for joining me. Appreciate it as always. Thanks, Kyle. All right, everyone. That'll do it for another Baseball America podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. For JJ Cooper, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, everybody. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.